that step is getting bigger or I'm getting older. I'm not sure which it is, but yeah, I am sure which it is. You know, every time the church gathers, it's a great day. It's a great day in the life of the church. We're celebrating His His saving grace to us as we gather together. You know, when you when you gather together after God has mercifully saved someone, it's a it's a reminder to us, and it's a great day in the life of the church, isn't it? It's a great day every Lord's Day. It's a great day. When we gather to sing, to pray, to the Sundays we partake of the Lord's Supper, we hear the Word preached, we hear the powerful presence of His Spirit is here. It's a great day. Can you say amen? You might look around and say, well, you know, I know who's here. Yeah, you do. You know, you can see who's here, but His Spirit is here. The powerful presence of His Spirit is here. For what purpose? To move among us. To take His Word and enliven it to our souls. To teach us. To convict us. To encourage us. And uniquely so. Some of us may need conviction this morning. Some of us may need encouragement. Or both. And we look to Him to do that. But today, as has been said already, as we'll lay hands on Gordy Bell later... To be uh, to become an elder in this church, it is a great day. This is the Lord's work, is it not? To raise up men, to lead, to serve in the life of the church, and we thank Him for it. Can you say Amen? This is no ordinary day in that respect, and we rejoice in it. Well, as you can see. Maybe from your notes you can take a look. I decided to uh, to give the adults uh, the children's notes too. Figuring we'd keep it simple for you. Actually, there are a few more things on yours than on theirs. But uh, I'm a picture guy anyway. I like pictures. So I gave you a few pictures. Maybe they'll Maybe they'll help. Doing great things for God. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10. You can tell adults that the notes are not inspired because it says 2 Corinthians. We're not going to do the whole book this morning. But chapter 10. Doing great things for God. You know, i got to tell you, this morning the one who's in the greatest need for this sermon is the one preaching the sermon. Doing great things for God, it's so easy for me to lose sight of what that is. And to focus on things that kind of fall under the umbrella and lose sight of the things that are the great things. The things that cannot be lost sight of. And I do it all too often. So I'll probably be preaching this sermon first to me. And you may listen. Doing great things. You ever dreamed of doing great things for God? Well, if you're in Christ, who hasn't? Who hasn't? You know, I I think of one of my my sons who with some of his friends have, have a dream to do 
great things for God. They have a dream to establish a church and establish a school. And I don't know whether that dream will ever come to fruition or not. Dreams are important to us. Doing great things for God, the dreams, the anticipation, the, the, the getting ready, the being trained, the being equipped is a great thing. Whether or not that dream of my son ever comes to fruition or not, it has channeled his thoughts, channeled his efforts in the direction of Jesus Christ and the cross. Can you say amen? You want your children to have, have dreams of doing great things for God. What kind of ministry does God use to do great things? Him. You know, the answers are surprising. They're found in many places in the Scriptures. They're found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And that's what will be the focus of our attention this morning. I tried to give you a little bit of a look at, uh, at some context for the letter. The melodic line, the melody you go away singing after you've read through. 2 Corinthians. Kids, it's on yours outline. Parents, it's on your outline. The, the melodic line of 2 Corinthians could be phrased a lot of ways, but here's one way. All gospel ministry is from the Father. It relies on the power of God as seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's from the Father. It relies on the power of God as expressed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Meaning, that it relies upon power that it translates itself into sacrificial giving. Sacrificially giving to people what we have received that we did not deserve. And the thing that makes that giving away sacrificial is we're always called to give it to people who don't deserve it. Can you say amen? Time for an amen. amen. The hardest time to give it away is when the person you're giving it to doesn't deserve it. I want you to close your eyes a moment. Just close your eyes and listen. You can hear the melody. You can hear this melody in the beginning of this letter when Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You may open your eyes. We receive from God in the midst of our trials, our afflictions, comfort, powerful comfort. And we receive it so that we can give it away. That circle of receiving and giving is one that goes around and around and around all our life long. It comes from the Father it's energized by the power of God as expressed in the cross. The, the epitome of sacrificial giving. And I just want to contend 
or make the the contention this morning that that's what Paul is putting on display. He says, he's saying that's the great thing. That's what it means to do great things for God. It's not that it's the only thing that's good, the only thing that's great, but it is at the top of the heap. And without it, the other things aren't so great. In fact, they can turn into that which is pretty fleshy real fast. You know, one of the other, sometimes most disappointing things about doing great things for God is that doing great things for God always involves us in the life of the church. And it always involves us in the lives of the people in the church. Now, you don't have to be involved very long in the life of the church and in the lives of the people in the church before you come to know that you can get hurt there. You can get hurt there. Now, I could ask you to raise your hand. I'm not. I could ask you to raise your hand if being involved in the life of the church and in the lives of the people of the church, you ever been wounded Well, the answer is probably yes, you have. It's part of what goes with the territory. This morning, we're going to look at a man, the Apostle Paul, doing great things for God who knows what it is to sacrificially give of himself and to get in return. little context. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is urging the people in the church to do what they promised to do. What did they promise to do? They had promised to give a great offering for their brothers in Jerusalem who were suffering. Kind of like what's going on down in the south. People down there are suffering, aren't they? And the call has come. Help! And you've heard it. And some have already gone. Some are there now. Some will go. Because they hear the call to help. To give a great offering to brothers in need. To people in need. Well, that's what it was. A great offering calling them. Paul wants them to be ready with this gift. Generous with this gift. Willing with this gift. Basically, what he wants them to do is to do great things for God as they give from a heart of sacrifice. The last verse of chapter 9, verse 15, just before where we're going to jump in now. And he says this, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Uh, The indescribable gift of a Savior. And as Paul is calling them to be ready, to be willing, to be generous, he's saying this, you want to know how generous? You want to know how willing? I want you to look at the cross. I want you to look at the indescribable gift you have received and make your gift in light of that. Steve, should we take an offering right now? (laughs) We could take an offering right now and it would be greater because... Our eyes are fixed on the greatest. So here's our outline for our thinking this morning. Together, you can see it there. Doing great things for God involves Paul in one war, one battle. 
the battle, the war, to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. It involves Him in one building project. Building people up in Christ. It involves Him in one ministry. The ministry of the Gospel of Christ in all of life and to all the world. For the sake of the kids, let me just say that once more. Doing great things for God involves Paul in one war. Taking every thought captive to Christ. Involves them in one building. Building people up in Christ. Involves them in one ministry. The gospel of Christ in all of life and to all the world. If we lose this war, if we lose this battle, if we prioritize some other building project or some other ministry, we'll have no message for our families, for our neighbors, or for the nations. That's how important this is. Let's pray. Father, we invite You now to move and have free course among us as we think about these words and what You've said. We pray, Father, that You will break through hard barriers that have been built for a long time And that You'll cause Your Word to do what only You know You desire it to do in each one of us, beginning with me. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I've asked John Iverson if he'd stand and read verses 1-6 to of this chapter real loud, and then we'll talk about it together. speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Thanks, John. Paul's plea for a great gift is not received well by everyone in Corinth. <laughs> Some said, He's not acting like an apostle. Some said, haven't seen him do any miracles lately. Some said, I haven't heard any new revelations lately. You know what I've come to conclude? His ministry is just fleshy. Paul's response to that kind of response to his call to do great things for God is amazing. And we've got to pay careful attention to it. Remembering that these people, the church at Corinth, are those who at the beginning of the first letter, he said, I can't talk to you spiritual. Because you're just operating in the energy of the flesh. Now listen to what he says as John read it for us. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He begins his comments in this chapter clothing himself with something. He's a warrior clothed with Christ. 
and He wants it to be reflected in the way that He speaks. I urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He could have said, but didn't. Look, I'm an apostle. You can't talk to me like that. You can't ignore me and get away with it. Rather, He brings them an appeal designed to remind them of their Savior and His sacrificial gift on their behalf. You know, and Paul and elsewhere reminds the church constantly he didn't get this message from any man. God took him into the desert in Arabia and taught him. He put together the message of the prophets and the cross of Christ. And he brought those things, two things together so that what's what's boiling and churning in Paul's heart might be words like, he, like that of Isaiah and Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and a sheep, or like a sheep that's silent before his shears, he didn't open his mouth. And we hear the Apostle begin to call people to obedience by pointing them to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Doing great things for God always requires putting on all that is our Savior. Especially when we're dealing with the sin and failure of those we're called to serve. Or even our own sin. You know, I'm so convicted right here. This is where I fail so often. Right here. Parents, you can identify with this. If you've got children, you know what it is to fail when you're called to serve your children as a Christian. And yet, you hear the things coming out of your own mouth. You hear the thoughts in your own breast. And they might not be, I urge you, my son or my daughter, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He clothes himself. Dear ones, I would ask you, as you think about those with whom you interact, to clothe yourselves with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Paul here is a warrior taking every thought captive to Christ. Hear, hear him. How does he do it? He says, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Rather, they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and, or your, your translation might say, arguments. And, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's as if Paul is saying, you're right, we do walk in the flesh. You're right, we do. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to doing great things for God, we use different weapons. We have different resources that are divinely powerful to deal thoroughly with wrong ways of thinking. Elders, pastors, parents, we're all in the same boat in this. We're always dealing with wrong thinking, whether it's among our children or among the sheep, or for Paul, whether it's the church at Corinth. He says he's got divinely powerful weapons to deal with wrong thinking that's raised up against what we know to be true about the knowledge of God and His love for us 
in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is bringing every fleshy, sinful, wrong thought, fearful thought that comes flooding into our minds and bringing it and bringing it and bringing it and making it a captive, laying it alongside the truth of God's word and his love for us in Christ Jesus, embracing the one, identifying the other as a lie. And running from it. Just a couple of examples. Adults, uh, kids too, I think. Just turn your, turn your notes over. I wanted to give you a couple of examples because I think we miss this. I've got four quick examples of, of what it looks like to take every thought captive. Here's, here's one. Example number one. Someone might say, I've heard people say this. I've said this. There's no meaning or reason for the pain I'm experiencing. Is that the truth? No, it's not the truth, but we can all identify with it. What is the truth? Well, it's right there. We've already read it once. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ points us to the cross. The Father of all mercies points us to the cross. And the God of all comfort points us to the cross who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll be able to comfort others with the comfort we have received from God. And as we as we take the lie, there's no meaning or reason for this pain. Yes, there is. It's a ministry waiting to happen. And we bring that lie captive to the truth of God's word and we hear it. And God gives a ministry. He takes something and turns something painful in a way to do great things for God. A ministry of comfort to the afflicted. But if we say, I don't want that ministry to the afflicted, then we're not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Look at the second one. Doctors have said, I'm just going to have to live with this for the rest of my life and I don't think I can make it. I've had people very dear to me say that. I've identified with that myself. It's a lie, isn't it? I don't think I can make it is a lie. When we hear Paul write, I'm confident of this thing, as he writes to the Philippian church, that he who began a good work and you will perfect it. How long? How long will he perfect it? Until the day of Jesus Christ. Until he comes again and completes the process he has begun in us. And so at the end of this same letter, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who constantly infuses me with strength. You take the lie, I don't think I can make it, and you bring it side by side with the truth. Oh, yes, you can, because he who began a good work will complete it. You say, I know where the lie is now. And I love the truth. And you embrace the truth. And it, and it, and it takes something that's hopeless, a situation that's hopeless, and it makes it a potential of doing great things for God. Giving you a ministry of encouragement to the hopeless. Look at number three. An example, there's no way God will forgive me again. I've done this too many times. It's a lie, isn't it? It's one we all recognize. It beats within our hearts often when we sin and are disappointed with ourselves. But the truth is, that the law came in, that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Turns even our sin into a way to do great things for God as we confess and repent and then go to a brother or a sister and confess and repent. And let our broken heart be shared with the very ones we may have sinned against. And it turns out that God gives us a ministry of forgiveness and mercy to sinners. Tell you what, every home needs that one, doesn't it? Look at the last example. But there could be countless more. Here's the lie. There's no way we'll have enough to pay this bill on time or ever. The, the debt is so big, we can't pay But the truth of the Scriptures is, my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Turns our lack into an opportunity to do great things for God, even if it's just coming here and singing of His greatness to provide. We had a family in our church not long ago, Jeff and Sharon Wirtz. Some of you may know them. They have a large family, largest family in our church. I can't keep up with it. I don't know if it's eight or nine. It's a lot. And they just had their ninth, I think it was. And their insurance didn't pay for very much. And they had a bill exceeding $10,000. And the Sunday I preached this sermon at Grace Church of DuPage, Jeff got up and had a testimony. See, after they had given birth, the hospital, knowing their financial condition, said, you know, we've got this program you can sign up for that might get you some help. And just in the weeks leading up to that, to this, the day I preached this sermon, he got a phone call and he said, oh, they said, oh, by the way, we've evaluated your application and we've decided to pay it all for you. You owe nothing. Zero. They, they, the thoughts that this is debt is too big, we'll never be able to pay it, now comes under the heading of the faithfulness of, of God, Take, turning a lack into an opportunity to do great things, a ministry of faith to the needy. You know, what if we leave this out? What if we just say, we're not going to do this? Then we don't have a message. We don't have a message. We might do all kinds of good things, benevolent things, but we don't have a message of a Savior who can redeem every moment, every situation. Can you say amen? Now, there's a hard part in this passage, and it comes in the next verse, in verse 6. We see Paul clothing himself in Christ. We see him taking every thought captive in Christ. What a powerful combination. But verse 6 Here's a a warrior waiting for obedience. We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience, church, is complete. It's an apostolic plea to abandon all other thoughts of what it means to do great things for God. Abandon all the fleshy thoughts. 
Paul has an expectation of the power of the Gospel, the power of Jesus Christ in the lives of Christians. He he has an expectation that the Gospel will change the the dynamic of every relationship. Now, at Kishwaukee Bible Church, there are relationships at Kishwaukee Bible Church that are strained and difficult. And some of the people in those relationships think this one can't be worked out. This one can't be fixed. This one is too big. This one is too hard. Are they right? No, they're not. Paul has an expectation that the Gospel, undeserved grace and love from God through His Son to us, will change any situation, any person, any relationship, as we have the courage to walk according to Christ and His sacrifice for us. Yet, there is apostolic discipline that awaits as a last resort. Why is that? Because there may be some who are hardened and deceived by sin who will not give up fleshy fighting fleshy trusting in their own fleshy weapons. You know how you can recognize those? They're accompanied by bitterness. They're accompanied by fear. They're accompanied by threats. They're accompanied by churning. And Paul knows that there may be some at the church of Corinth who may never abandon the efforts of the flesh and flee to Christ. And for them, there will be apostolic discipline. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the apostle, even though that's the last resort, believes that the gospel will change even the Corinthians. Can you say amen? Yeah. You know what, parents? If you've got children, you know what it's like to be fearful that they'll never change. That they're too hard a nut. But dear ones, I'm here to tell you, that isn't true. That isn't true. But it will take courage. It will take a a a remembering how undeserving you are of the grace and mercy and love of Christ that you have and are receiving now for you then to turn around and give it to them when they don't deserve it, in the midst of their failures. Second point. I've asked Steve Belanger if he'd stand and read verses 7 through 12 about this building that Paul is fixed on. Steve, would you read it for us?
class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without the English Standard Version of verse 7 is phrased as a command. And it says that he, Paul says it this way in the English Standard. He says, look at what is before your eyes. And if we put the beginning of this chapter together with that, I urge you by the meekness of Christ to look at what is right before you. And what is that? If you think that you are in Christ, I'm here to tell you that God has saved us in the same way He has saved you through the sacrificial death of His Son. We partake of the same meal. We partake of the same bread. We partake of the same shed blood of Jesus Christ. Paul has already revealed how he thinks about these people. Earlier in this second letter, in chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3, just listen. He says this to them. You are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, by the way, who is with us here now. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is, is these very ones who some of them are accusing. Some of them are... And, and he's reminding them, you're Christ's. You're cared for us by, by us. Parents, that's how you view your children. Elders, that's how we view the people. They're Christ's cared for by us. You know, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to think about someone who's calling you fleshy. Someone who's saying you're overbearing, boasting in authority. Someone who says you're personally unimpressive. And somebody who says, and not only that, when he gets up to preach, he's a lousy speaker. His speech is un, is contemptible. <laughs> How do you respond to somebody like that? Well, in verses 8 and 9, we see Paul being a warrior with authority that he understands what the reason God gave him an apostolic authority. It's to build these very people up in Christ. Authority. Look at verse, the second part of verse 8 and 9. Authority which the Lord gave for building you up, not destroying you. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you. What is it that Paul's always doing that always builds up, always purifies the church? It's comparing himself and them, not to each other, but to the love of God in Christ. We're not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves and compare themselves with themselves. And then later he says, people who do that are without understanding. They're in need. Instead, he's comparing all they think, all they say, all they do to the undeserved love of God in Jesus Christ. And he starts with transparency about himself. Look at, just look at chapter 12. Just over a couple of pages. Chapter 12. 
We hear Him. Look, look at chapter 12, verse 8. Concerning this, He had been given a thorn in the flesh to keep Him from being what? Proud. <laughs> to keep Him humble. He had a need to be humbled. And, and just so Paul, Paul wants the church of Corinth to understand his flesh is like theirs, he says three times, I said, God, get this out of here. I don't want this. I don't want to be humbled. I don't need to be humbled. And aren't you, aren't you glad that God doesn't answer that prayer? And what did God say? Nope. Not going to take it away. This is ministry for you. My power is put on display in weakness. And Paul confesses to them his failure, even in what God has given him as, as a ministry. And yet, as he hears God's answer, my grace is enough for you. Then he says, okay, if that's the case, I'm well content with weaknesses. I'm well content with the insults you're giving me. And you know how you can tell he's content? Because what he gives him back is the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's how you can tell. With distresses, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. Starts with transparency about himself, but then he does move on to them. Turn to chapter 13, the last chapter in the book. Look at verse 5. Actually, we could read the whole thing, but for sake of time, we can't. Look what he says to them. He says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. Now, I don't know about you. Now, I'm going to talk about that last phrase yet that's coming in that verse. Okay? I don't know about you, but as my kids were growing and getting into their teenage years, there were a few times when in the midst of their sin, needing a, a discipler, what they got from me was, remember this, you're in Christ. You're in Christ what they probably got for me all too often was, who do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to? Now, my guess is my flesh doesn't look a whole lot different than yours. Okay? And at least it wells up in your heart if it doesn't come out of your mouth. And yet here he says, test yourself. Examine yourselves. Don't you recognize this about yourselves? Jesus Christ is in you. Unless, indeed, you fail the test. Well, if you're thinking about this with me, you're saying, what's the test? What's the test? Well, really, it's an open book test. Didn't you like that in school when you had an open book test? It's a one-question test. What are you relying on to change yourself? What are you relying on to change somebody else? Is it, remember, Jesus Christ is in you. How can love and the grace of God in Christ be king when two people hurt each other? Process with me now. If you've missed everything up to now, get this. 
How can love and grace be king when two people hurt each other? Whether that's husband and wife, parent or child, elder and someone in the church. How can that happen? For grace and the love of Christ to be king, someone has to say in the midst of sin, in the midst of failure, I understand. I've failed too. More than you have. More than you know. I love you. Where can we find help? Isn't it at the throne of grace? Isn't it at the cross of our Savior? Whether it's forgiveness, 1 John 1.9, whether it's reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. He's given a ministry of us a ministry of reconciliation. Dear ones, in this church there has to be somewhere, probably sitting right here among you, a need for reconciliation, a need for the gospel. To be king, somebody has to say, I understand. I've failed too. More than you know. And I love you. And we find help. You know what? It's there for us. Can we pray and ask Him to help us? You see, there's no other way to do great things for God than to humbly, gently, without resorting to threats, build up those who've been called, who you've been called to serve, no matter who they are. By comparing yourself and others to the God's love for us in Christ Jesus. So we see Paul clothing himself with Christ, taking every thought captive to Christ, a warrior building up, building them up by humbly comparing himself and others to Christ. That's a gospel combination. Look at the last point. Let me read 13 to 18. One ministry. Chapter 10, verses 13 to 18. But we will not boast beyond our measure. But within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach, even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come, even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. The gospel in Christ in all of life and all the world is the one ministry that we have been given. What limits does Paul put on this ministry? And with this, we're just going to wind it up and close. Verse 13, he says, This ministry comes to us, this gospel in Christ and all of in the sphere which God has apportioned to us. You know, doing great things for God, folks, has to take place where you are before it can take place anywhere else. It's got to take place in your family. 
It's got to take place on your job. It's got to take place in your school. It's got to take place in your church. And if it doesn't take place there, it doesn't go anywhere else. Because you have no message to preach is what he's saying. So where's your sphere? Where's your God-apportioned sphere for this ministry, for this taking every thought captive, this building others up? Where does that? Where is that for you? Have you longed for another one without prioritizing this one? Look at verse 14. He says, part of that verse 14 says, even as far as you with the gospel. You know, doing great things for God always includes the gospel. I heard somebody in the prayer time this morning talking about what's going on down in Alabama and Mississippi. That churches down there are feeding, they are clothing, but they're giving the gospel, they're praying. They're, it has to be that way. It has to always include the gospel. But this, look at this. Here's the thing. The whole message of this chapter and this letter is it's the gospel clothing us in Christ. So it can be seen even when somebody falsely accuses me or rightly accuses me. So it can be, so this, this, it's this taking every thought captive to Christ so it will be noticed and people will ask for a reason for the hope that's within us that we're not giving them back what they deserve. It's building others up in Christ even when they don't deserve it. Cancel that. Especially when they don't deserve it. Look at verse 16. It's the gospel even to the regions beyond you. Doing great things for God must include a heart and a dream for the regions beyond. For you, it's Nepal. Now, it's, it, Alabama has kind of gotten in the way here. It's become another one. But, but Nepal is part of the region and you're going to be called upon to give sacrificially just as Paul re, uh, called on the church of Corinth to give for those in Jerusalem. To give and maybe even to go. And to see what's going on there. Wouldn't that be great? In verse 17, But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Doing great things for God has one ever-present enemy. Let me say that again. Doing great things for God has got one ever-present enemy. Me. Focusing on me. My needs, my hurts, my plans, me, me, me. Verse 18, For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. What will the Lord approve? You know what he'll approve? Putting on Christ. Giving Christ away. When they don't deserve it. Clothing yourself in Christ so it can be seen in the toughest of situations. Taking every thought captive so it will be noticed. And people will ask, how can you respond that way? And building others up in Christ when they don't deserve it. If we lose this war or put some other building project or ministry first, we'll have no message for our neighbors or the nation's. Do you need help in this? I do. Do you need help in this? You know what it has us saying to one another? I understand. Me too. 
Where can we go and find what we need? Come with me. I know the way. I know the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. I know the way to mercy greater than our sin. I know the way to undeserved love. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Come with me. Even now. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Father, I thank You for working among us. I thank You for taking Your Word and causing it to to engage our hearts and our minds. I pray for those who who have already drawn from Emmanuel's veins all that they need and are giving it away even when it's undeserved. I pray for those who are like me going back and forth wondering if mercy greater than our sin, grace greater than our sin will change my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife. Yes, it will. Father, help us. Thank You for the opportunities for ministry that You put in front of us. Thank You for your Savior, our Savior that You have sent to take our place. May we revel in all that He's done for us that we haven't deserved and then give it away. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So be it. I agree. That's what Amen says. I agree. So be it. The tough part will be now we're going to go home. Right? In the power of the Spirit. Steve.